This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, that's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 84. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Ryan Irvin, founder of Keystone Financial. I actually met Ryan, it just so happens, at our event in Las Vegas, the Planet Microcap Showcase. And I started following Keystone on social media, listened to a few of Ryan's interviews, and read articles from his blog. And I thought I wanted to invite Ryan to come on the program and share his thoughts on microcap investing and his Keystone philosophy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 84. And please enjoy my interview with Ryan Irvin, founder of Keystone Financial. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2019 investor conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30th to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30 to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I would like to welcome Ryan Irvin, founder of Keystone Financial. Ryan, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. It's great to be on for a first time here. It's good to talk to you again, and I actually look forward to seeing you down in Vegas in, in a couple of months at your uh, Planet Micro event there. It should be great. Ryan, you know, I, I, I appreciate you coming on, and also for the, uh, for the unsolicited plug. I am very appreciative of that. So, uh, so with that, um, let's get started here. You know, how did you get your start investing in the stock market and, and your introduction to the world of finance? Well, if we, if we want to go way back in our time machine, I'm going to go back it. to, yeah, let's go back to uni, or high school, it was like 25 years ago, which is pains me to say, to be honest, but um, <laughs> we had a stock picking contest. One of my math teachers had that. And, uh, you know, I found the idea of the capital markets exciting. There was plenty of information we saw out there to be found on, 
you know, the larger companies, household names in Canada and the U.S. But what intrigued me were kind of the the underdogs, the untold stories, the stocks trading at that time under $10. I thought in my head that was all small companies and, you know, even pennies, which I thought would be my price range at that time. So we're looking for the next great company and, and the ones that could provide me the returns that could easily, you know, crush that contest. But the problem was there was really little information on these type of companies, particularly back then. And with some digging, you know, we found that there was, and I found that you later discovered there was some information out there, but, you know, this information ended up lightening my wallet, even in high school, that these, <laughs> these investment reports out there were glorified sell-side reports written by brokerages that were paid by the companies. They were covering through financing fees or worth puff pieces authored by essentially paid shills for the companies. Most of these in Canada were in the mining and exploration sector where you see the TSX or Toronto Stock Exchange and the Venture Exchange are laden with these black holes where really this capital goes to die in these companies. Productive capital just goes to die. And I learned it the hard way. Um, and one of the primary reasons why we started Keystone and why Keystone has little coverage in the resource segment in Canada uh, it's beat to death in this country, and most investors are already overexposed. So uh, we don't look into the junior resource sector unless there's extreme profitability or extreme cases. We really don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But I went on to university um, to get a grounding in finance, uh, security, and stock analysis, specifically, really. And the education in there has served me well, but the philosophy uh, t that was taught in academia at the time and today, at most institutions, surrounds efficient market hypotheses, or EMH, and the basic theory states that it's possible to, it's impossible to beat the market because the stock market is efficient, causing existing share prices to always incorporate and reflect all relevant information. Many academics, even today, because we go back and talk at universities, um, they, they blindly stick to that theory. And... In reality, we and I at the time disagreed with that. I, I do recall, I'm going to go back in my time machine again, there was a fourth year class in finance where our professor was lecturing on how to construct the perfect portfolio to mirror the market. And I put my hand up, and I can always remember this, I asked, um, why not try to pick stocks that actually beat the market? Why are we just mirroring the market? And the professor immediately replied that this was impossible, told me to reread the chapter on EMH. Now, I put my hand back up and asked him how he would explain Warren Buffett's multi-decade track record of outperformance that's considered impossible according to efficient market hypothesis. And he replied to me, he said, who's Warren Buffett? And I, so I, I realized at the time this was an issue with having a math teacher teach a finance course. <laughs> Uh, sure, he could teach us how to crunch the numbers, but he's not an investor, and he's not going to help me beat the market. So what do I do? Uh, for some different lines of thinking, uh, you know, I read stuff, the intelligent investor, or, you know, most analysts have read that by Ben Graham, and, you know, anything <clears throat> from Warren Buffett. And mm -hmm. we wanted, you know, we I believe that, you know, you, you look at thousands of companies to come up in the public markets and, and to make sure we're not missing anything. That's what they talk about doing. And that's where we find the real opportunities. So to, to find some information, uh, quality, institutional quality information on smaller companies was very difficult. I mean, that's a long-winded way of saying it. But 
is definitely very difficult. And we wanted to provide that same level of quality research in this sector. And there was certainly a, a lack of it in Canada. And we still see a lack of it throughout the world, really, in these segments mm -hmm. or in this segment. And, you know, we want to provide that quality, independent research on uh, these exciting uh, businesses, but that have great solid cash flow, good solid businesses and trade at reasonable prices. So mm -hmm. it, there was a, a lack of that coverage and we, we provide it to our clients and it's been very successful. Nice. So how did you get to that point then where, you know, where you are providing this type of research uh, out of Keystone Financial? You know, so because you, you or have you just been investing straight through and then you said, you know what, I've, I've done pretty well. I think I have a formula that works that's actually institutional grade. And then, you know, let's start up a shop where we're really focusing on that. You know, how, how did you get to the point where you're at today? Yeah, well, we uh, we started the company in our last year of university. So, uh, ah, okay. you know, when, when our when our finance professors told us we couldn't beat the market, it was like, okay, we'll show you. We'll go back. Challenge and accepted. Try to beat the market. Yeah, I, lo <laughs> I love the challenge. I love, you know, looking through thousands of public companies to find somebody who's missed something and, uh, you know, find an undervalued gem. And, and that's, we started doing that. We started making money for ourselves, paid our, you know, paid my way through university, which was great. Um, and then, you know, people started asking whether or not, you know, they could, you know, if they could get our research. So we, you know, put a shingle up online, registered as a financial advisor and went through that whole process. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, started distributing our research online that way and uh you know it's been it's it it's satisfied a part of the market that really wasn't there in terms of you know independent there's lots of research firms that put up a shingle and say they're independent but they're either getting paid by the companies or doing financings and in our opinion that's not independent so you know we're not doing any of those two things we don't get paid anything by the companies that we recommend we just get paid by our individual clients or institutional investors who pay for us to find them the best small cap we've also expanded into you know we we love companies that pay dividends too so we've gone into that area our clients said give us research on you know use your same criteria your cash flow your growth or reasonable price type criteria to larger companies and uh, we, we offer that as well. And we expanded into the U.S. just using the same criteria down there. Mm -hmm. So then what attracted you to the microcap space really in essence was that's where you saw where in maybe according to your theory, you could beat the market. Am I correct in yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's I mean, investing is tough, right? It's tough regardless. Yeah. Uh, that's for you sure. Need to, yeah, you need to look anywhere you can gain an advantage and take that advantage. And there can be a lack of information and analysis when we look at smaller companies. It's one of the mm -hmm. primary areas we're there. That can lead to inefficient pricing and an opportunity to best or beat the market. So put simply, if there's one or two or no analysts covering a stock, and we'll find that, uh, particularly in Canada, but we can even find it in the U.S., it's more likely we can find a bargain or a mispriced stock. So that's why we're there. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, a lack of coverage in itself does not equate to value. Um, we often sort through a thousand companies and 998 of them are, you know, wouldn't meet our criteria. A lot of them we call garbage, you know, and to find that one or two, those small businesses that offer value and growth potential. But mm -hmm. I think that's where we shine in that discovery type research. Uh, we, we've, you know, found some great companies that uh, offer value because you're going to make mistakes. So you need to have winners. So, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. 
we we f actually have recommended, and not just once, we recommended this company 10 years ago, uh, and we still own it today. Uh, it's called Boyd Group, the Boyd Group Income Fund. It shows it's a great example of the type of research that we do and the type of kind of boring businesses we like to recommend to our clients. It actually is the best performing stock on the entire Toronto Stock Exchange over the last 10 years. But you don't hear a ton about it because it's really, they don't go to the market a lot. They don't enrich Bay Street or Wall Street. They just enrich, enrich their investors, which is what we like to cover. This was recommended to our clients in 2008, in November 2008, at $2.30. We have recommended it 25 times since. Today it trades, it's paid us $3.50 in dividends, so it's paid back our investment in dividends, but it trades over $120 today. So it's literally returned 5,700% over the past 10 years. Now, not every stock we recommend is going to do this, like, it, it, but it gives you an excellent example of the type of research that we do and the type of companies we look for. So what does Boyd do? Uh, at the time, then, they were one of the largest operators of automobile collision repair centers in, Can in Canada and among the larger multi-site collision repair companies in, uh, in the North America. So they'd moved into the U.S. as well. So recession or not, and there was you know, a great recession uh, or a great recession-type scenario in, in the U.S. and Canada at that time, uh, you need to fix your vehicle. You need a means of getting from A to B. So that was a good quality, relatively non-cyclical business that was on sale. It had a $25 million market cap, and it posted revenues in the last quarter of around $50 million alone. So it, it was this real, relatively sizable business in the small cap or micro cap arena with trading at very low valuations. Its PE, I remember at the time, was four, and its price to sales was like 0.14. It's just really low valuations, uh, mispriced stock in a, in, a, in a time when, you know, there was, a, there was a, a lot of actually mispriced companies at that time. But it happened to be the one that performed the best. It's one that we've recommended 25 times over the past you know, decade. Mm -hmm. uh, it serves as an example of the type of research that we like to perform. And then when we find a company like that that continues to perform well over time, we continue to recommend it. Like we just recently so, re-recommended it. Hold on, Ryan. Let me let – me, I wanted yeah. to – I because I want to get into that now, you know, like uh, – into the Keystone philosophy itself and that criteria that led you to find ideas like this one that you've, you know, as, as you discussed just now. So, you know, in essence, what, what is the Keystone philosophy then? Well, I, I, you know, it's, it's in two areas. Like one would be just, we focus on our research and it's to leave no stone unturned. So when, when I look at uh, how we got to Boyd and how we get to some of the recommendations that we uh, that we find it's because in Canada, uh, every company files on uh, in the U.S. You file on Edgar, and in, in Canada you file on something called CDAR. So there's just over 3,000 publicly traded companies in Canada. Our analysts, two of them at least, go through every company in Canada twice a year. So you look at every MDNA and and, and every financial statement of these companies now. In Canada, it's a little bit easier, we find, because you know we, based on our criteria, we can summarily dismiss about 75% of the companies just by looking at the first line, which is revenue. If they don't have revenue, we dismiss them, because we are our criteria looks for profitability. Obviously, if you don't have revenue, there's no profitability. 
So we can get rid of those and then we can dig down on, on the 25% that start to meet our criteria. But um, literally by looking through all of those companies, having a strict criteria of we want profitability. So if there's revenue, then you go to the bottom line, see if there's profitability uh, and then cash flow. And then we look at a balance sheet if there's you know limited debt ratios or we love in the small cap sector companies that are cash rich or have a net cash position because it tends to be obviously a riskier sector or a segment of the market. So it's an area that we like to see a cash rich or great balance sheet. So when you go through all of those companies, it can lead you to some of these completely mispriced securities, stocks that are often orphaned in the market. But it is, it is you know, the philosophy there is to look at any company, leave no stone unturned and use a specific criteria that looks at cash flow and earnings. But the the other thing is we, we don't just, uh, you know, look, focus on the research. We also provide a, for our clients, we provide kind of a, um, it, it's our it's our strategy in terms of what you do in investing and, and how to look at individual investments, but also how to, how many stocks to buy within your portfolio. And that's part of our philosophy. So how to effectively structure your portfolio. So we recommend to our clients how many stocks they should own within a simple portfolio, what type of stocks, when to buy them and when to sell. We, we want them to pair our research with a discount brokerage. So it costs them very little on a per trade basis. And, and when we're talking about how many stocks to buy, we don't want uh, a client to buy 50 or 100 stocks. We want them to buy 10 to 20 stocks within their portfolio. Because if you hold anything beyond 20 or 25 stocks, you don't get much benefit from diversification. And you start to overcomplicate your individual stock portfolio. And it just mirrors the market. And you start to underperform because there's more fees involved in that portfolio and the way you construct it. So stressing to our clients to buy those 10 to 20 stocks over at, you know, over an 18 or 12 to 18 month period, as well as part of our criteria that we, we stress to clients and to have a realistic time horizon. So two to five years, most of our recommendations are not designed to work over two weeks or two months or even a year, they're designed to let that company grow its financial position over a two to five year period. We constantly update all the companies we're looking at, but you know we are looking at, at focusing at a long term type horizon, two to five years at minimum. So, so Ryan, I, I, wanted, I wanted to, to follow up here because you know, yep. th this is a question I've been wanting to ask a, a few of my guests because you know, there's your your the criteria you're describing. It is very similar to some of the guests I've had on. You know, in the yep. sense of profitability, cash flow, limited debt ratios, net cash. You know, that really kind of that value based. You know, the main fundamentals uh, type approach. And would you would you say then in, in your experience, it's because a lot I've also been getting from some of my guests that it's been harder to find companies that meet their criteria. And I've been curious from your your standpoint, is it harder because there's more people that have similar criteria that may find those companies and maybe take, you know, take positions in them maybe earlier than they probably should and it runs up the price of the stock? Or is it just that there's less of those companies? Um, I, there's a bit of a combination, I think, but I think it's it, it, it has to do with I mean, in the U.S., like you've had a, a, a strong uh, 
bull market for an extended period. Mm -hmm. It just naturally leads to uh, less companies that we that would fit our criteria. And we think that that's the biggest influence right now uh, on why it's high, hard for a fundamental analyst or a value analyst to find a ton of value or traditional value in the market right now. Um, I think that extended period of, of strong gains has just pushed up valuations. Like we'll use the Schiller PE, like a 10-year blended average PE essentially to right. tell us potentially where the market is in terms of valuation going forward. And, and right now, like the Schiller's PE is far closer to the highs than it is to its lows of all time. So, I, I mean, that tells us. And th I mean, this time last year, we would have said the same thing, uh, you know, in, in I think March, early March last year, we did some work on it. And, uh, you know, it told us the markets overall were relatively expensive. So you're just not going to find as many growth at a reasonable price stories, or specifically, you're not going to find as many value with growth stories uh, at that time that, that stick out. I mean, you know, to give you an example, after the 2008, 2009 crisis, we recommended 15 companies in about four months. Mm -hmm. Now, this time last year, over the past year, I think in our small cap, small cap research, we did about six or seven companies total. So, you know, that just leads you to less companies. Yes, there's less value out there. I think that what, what you don't want to do is adjust your criteria to fit, you know, this current conditions in the market. So we will stick to the same criteria if it leads to less recommendations. That's totally fine with us. Um, we're, we're fine to be patient because there will be a downturn at some point and we will find more businesses and we will buy more businesses. But that is part of the reason why, say, if you became a client of ours today, we don't want you to buy 10 or 20 stocks you know, in the first month. We want you to take 12 to 18 months. That's part of the strategy that we use. So there will be a downturn at some point, whether it's a downturn within a year segment of the market or a significant downturn from the last five or 10 years, there will be a downturn over the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, that allows you to buy and take advantage of that if you don't buy all your companies you know, that we're recommending right now. And quite frankly, if you come to me right now and say, give me 10 stocks, I need 10 stocks to invest in right now, I can't give you 10 high conviction, high quality growth at a reasonable price businesses to buy right now. But if you give us a year and we look through 3,000 companies in Canada, right. we look through another 3,000 in the US, something will pop up on our radar, something will meet our criteria and we'll, you know, we'll build that portfolio for you. That's why, you know, when we talk about our philosophy, yes, we're looking for cash flow. Yes, we're looking for earnings. We're looking to leave absolutely no stone unturned because that's where mm -hmm. we have an advantage. But we're also looking to employ that strategy of, you know, you don't want to buy one or two stocks, but you want to concentrate in 10 to 20 stocks. You don't want to buy 300 stocks like through an ETF or mm -hmm. Uh, a mutual fund. So you have that strategy that you use as well, buying over time with that, uh, the expectation that you will wait with that company as it grows. Obviously, things can change. If a business is turned south, you can sell it. If it, or if a, you know you have a stock go up 300% and it's only growing at 100%, for example, it might become mispriced on the upside. It might become overvalued, so you can sell. Like those are things that we do and adjust the portfolio, but we are looking to hold for two to five years. It would be great to hold the business forever, right? right. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, 
but some to some people, but you know, like we've held Boyd for 10 years. I think we'll hold it for another 10 years. Something might change, but you know, it's a, it's been a great business for us. You want to buy those businesses. So, but the two things in the philosophy there focus on look, you know, leaving no stone unturned with the research. But the other thing is to have a specific strategy that you're using to employ within your portfolio. Those are two things that will, you know, allow us to succeed, we believe, or best the market is what we're trying to do in any given market. Mm-hmm. And it that's is tougher now. That's for that is fine right now, but we find well, it's well it's it's interesting because right now it's like you know, I think a big misconception is like uh, it's it's not that there aren't still, you know, even the businesses when the price of their stock has, you know, maybe gone or has maybe gone up a, a little bit too much or past where you had at it, mm-hmm. had it at a certain level. That's not to say they're not good businesses. It's just based on your qualitative on, on your research. It's like, well, okay, based on the where we valued this business yesterday for it to be priced here, you know, we don't necessarily really agree with where it's being priced at, but that doesn't mean it's it's a bad business. You yeah, know? we have a ton of companies that are very good businesses. There's more companies on what we call our monitor list right now than there was five years ago mm-hmm. that are really good businesses, businesses that we would love to invest in mm-hmm. if they were trading at a more reasonable price. And we circle back on them, circle back. And if they get in that range, we will buy them. But we don't want to buy them at when we think they're expensive. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. Having said that, I'd rather buy a good business at a reasonable price than a cheap business uh, or a bad business at a cheap price, right? And and that's where you you learn that over time. You just don't buy something because it's cheap because often it's cheap for a reason. And obviously you learn that over time. But, you know, there are, we'll often monitor a company four or five years before we buy into it. Sometimes it's four or five days if you find something that just comes across here and you're able to do the research. But you know, the best company we selected last year uh, was a company we still own today. Uh, it's called Expel Inc. It trades in Canada, but it it does most of its business in the U.S. Its symbol is DAP.U. Uh, .U means it actually trades in Canada, but in U.S. dollars. So it's easier for a U.S. Uh, person to buy. There's no currency tra- transition there. So anyways, what what does the company do? It's important to talk about if we're going to talk about it. They provide automotive film uh, and uh, window tinting film for the automotive industry, aftermarket industry. So that that film that you put on a car to prevent your annoying scratches and dings that you get. Another boring business happens to be in the automotive sector. That's not, we mentioned two that have been in there. That's not exactly where we're looking. It just happened to be cheap. We monitored it for four years uh, in I think it was we came to a buy on it finally in uh, in the at the end of two early into 2018 at the end of 2017. Uh, no analyst coverage on the stock at the time, uh, trading at low valuations, and also like because we go through every company, uh, we could see that there were some one-time adjustments. The the revenue growth was great. Uh, they were promising a margin uptick. The margin uptick has, was already happening. But uh, there's, when there's nobody following them, uh, you can see it happening in two quarters, nobody reacting to it. And there were some one-time costs in there that were hiding it. And that's our job to go through those things and find and take out the one-time items and adjust for them. And, you know, it was trading at about $1.43 to $1, you know, $1.60 in that range. Today, I think it trades above $6, $6.20 in that range. Um, 
know, it was up 320% last year. So that was a year where we thought it's very difficult to find value. It's very difficult to find growth at a reasonable price. But there's a business that we were able to find that, you know, had tremendous growth. And the, the thing is, that growth that we saw in the business last year was driven by fundamentals, not hype, not a story or anything like that. They had a fourfold increase in earnings and the stock went up 300%. So why do we still own it today? Because its earnings growth actually outstripped the growth in the stock. So you can continue to own a good business that does that. And we continue to own it here and like it going forward. But you know, it's a tough time to buy stocks, but you know, there's still great individual stocks out there. And that's what excites me about being in the micro cap sector, because you couldn't have found that company that was trading at the valuations that it did at the time. And even that it does now, if there was 20 or 30 analysts following it. So you can still, if you dig deep enough, find these companies where, you know, nobody's following them. And eventually, like some of our best, winners over time we've sold when funds start buying right and they push the multiples to higher levels so we love to give our individual client investors an advantage over the big boys it's one thing that you can do when you're looking at this level because often you know the individual investor does not have any advantage over the, the mm -hmm. larger investors right 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 so uh my next question is, it's actually going back to something you said a little bit earlier when you said, you know, it's important to have a strategy going into any market. And uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, your strategy that you mentioned in your, in your Keystone philosophy, and that's a growth at a reasonable price strategy. You know, so the, for, for those who may not know, what, what does gross, excuse me, what does growth at a reasonable price mean? And then how is this strategy different from a value-based approach? Or is it different? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, you know, we say that we use GARP, right, or growth or reasonable mm -hmm. price. It means we recommend a stock we believe that, you know, a strong business that will grow over time and we're willing to buy that company because it's trading significantly below what we believe its intrinsic value is, essentially, right? And so, you know, I'll, I like to use real-world examples. So if your company is growing at 20% and its price to cash flow is 10%, it's probably, you know, its growth is outstripping the price you're paying for the stock. So that would be simply, quite simply, growth at a reasonable price. And you've got to project that growth going forward and model that as well. But, you know, that's what we're trying to do. Um, when you're looking at value, you might be looking at a sum of the parts of the business. Um, you know, and, and for us, and in some value investors will we'll take a look at a business and say, you know, if I took out, it's quite simply, if I sold all the parts of this business, it's worth a heck of a lot more than what the business is trading at right now. And, and you know, we, there are times where we can see some merit in that strategy. The, the issue that we'd have is, you know, we want a, a business to grow, not just to sell off its parts or anything like that. Like we want a business, to, if you're going to own that for 10 years, um, I think that you want that business to be in an industry that's growing and, and be, you know, somewhat of a leader in that segment and trading at reasonable valuations. So for us, uh, we also like to factor in dividends, right? And, and when a company is growing, like even in the small cap sector, we look at stocks that'll pay a dividend and be a dividend grower. And if you look at what dividend growth stocks or stocks that continually grow their dividend over time have done, um, those are companies that outperform the market. And you you find them in 
growthier companies, dividend growth stocks, obviously are growthier companies, strict value businesses, um, you know, often aren't dividend, dividend growth businesses. So it depends on who's looking at it, how they define the business as well. And, you know, there are certain types of growth that we often prefer. Like we like organic growth or companies that are able to grow existing business from internally generated cash flow. Just grow that existing business that they already have rather than growth by acquisition stories that constantly throw paper at the market, raise capital, dilute and grow and to grow the top line essentially, but not always growing the bottom line because it's going to come down to per share cash flow or earnings growth to power a stock. Uh, if the share count increases faster than the cash flow growth, your share price will not increase despite the top line growth. It's quite simple. So companies that uh, continue to grow organically or, you know, if you're going to grow by acquisition, we'd like a company that's patient and builds up a ton of cash from internally generated cash flow on the balance sheet and then goes out and makes purchases to grow that way rather than it's very hard to issue shares and continue to stay ahead of your share count in terms of on a per share cash flow basis. And we've seen many companies implode doing that. We'd rather have a company uh, grow out of internally generated cash flow and grow organically. If you're going to grow by acquisition, you know, it's better if we see it out of internally generated cash flow. Mm -hmm. So what sectors, if I may, to follow up on that point, have you found most frequently in your, your 25 year experience in looking at companies? Um, sorry, I want to, you know, look, I got to give credit where credit's due. You've been doing it for 25 years. Let's, let's make it known. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I started when I was 10. So, yeah, yeah, there, I'm yeah. Kidding, but, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but. So but, <laughs> my kids make me old. That's what happens. Oh, okay. No, but yeah. But anyways, no. Uh, yeah, it's it is a really good question. I I wish like I had uh, you know the magic button that could tell you like here is a sector that we always find you know th this type of business in that, that 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 grows consistently over time. But I mean, we have like SaaS software businesses that do this. We have companies that fix cars that do this. We have companies that you know, uh, process gold that, you know, they consistently produce. So I, you know, that is, I think that's what keeps, uh, me excited about the research that we do. It is very different and disparate businesses that we find that, um, that end up meeting our criteria over time and produce consistent cash flow and, uh, you know, provide good returns for our clients is essentially what we're looking for. What I can say is some areas that we don't find, the value in like that we and we just you'll still look just in case there's something sure. there because you have to look at but we really don't find a lot of value in resource related companies like consistent cash generators in say the gold segment uh it's just like a gold producer a junior miner there's some streamers in that sector royalty type companies that maybe outperform but as far as junior miners, junior exploration, I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. We know too much about them from, you know, being in Vancouver where the Vancouver Stock Exchange used to uh, run. He's, he's a wild west out here. But, um, you know, there's they're complete capital destroyers in that sector we see. So we avoid junior mining companies. We don't see good long-term capital creation there. Energy companies, um, it's very cyclical, so there's very difficult for energy producers 
and the um, service companies. There's some service companies, you know, that you can, you know, for us, timing might be a four or five year cycle that we're looking at going forward. You might have see a time when you could buy them ahead of, uh, you know, uptick in energy prices. But, you know, those businesses we avoid because we don't see consistent long term cash flow generation. So those are two areas like resource in general are areas where we do not see consistent cash flow generation. It's very lumpy, very boomer bust. And, you know, you got to time that and we do not like timing the market. Right. So then what, you know, let's continue on this path. You know, I, I want to know also, cause part of your process is also a, a very qualitative in the sense that you like to look at, according to your website, you also like to evaluate management teams, you know, so yeah. for, for you, what are some of the good characteristics and then red flags that you look for when you are in evaluating management teams? Yeah, and we love to get in front of teams too. That's why we come out to. I'm plugging your event again. That's where we come. Let's out go. To keep going. I love right. it. <laughs> well, that's why we come out to Vegas. We look at you know we look at the look at management teams. Get to talk to them for half an hour. It's great. We you know we do events down in California as well. We're going to New York next uh, month. You know, sitting down with management is great. But you know you can you can do a lot as an individual investor to just look into the management teams themselves and. You know, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, but share ownership is a, is a big thing that we look at. We have a ton of boxes that we like to check off. One of them would be that if management on the negative side, if they own little shares um, and have, say, a high salary or high base salary or package tied to revenue growth, it's a potential red flag. Because, But we like to see a significant position or stock position from the key management. Uh, it you know, or it's at least a, a large percentage of their individual wealth in the stock. It helps them pull on the same rope. They tend to make less dilutive financings, pay and increase dividends, grow operations on a per share basis. All those things that we look for to grow value long term. Like you can't always get that box. There's sometimes when a management team, you know, it was founded by a great entrepreneur and, um, you know, that guy was he had a great idea for the business, he, but he wasn't actually a good operator. So you could bring in a good operating team and maybe they don't have the massive share position that the founder did, but, uh, you know, and they can run it well. But if we could look in a perfect world, it would be a guy who was a great operator who also owned, you know, a, a significant stake in the business as well. So that would be one thing that we look for. And then on the flip side, if they don't, you know, it can be a red flag. Now, the track record for the business, we look at management, uh, you know, like I said, when we looked at Expel before, uh, you know, we followed it for four years. So you track what management says, the team that's there. Do they consistently overpromise and underdeliver? If they do, it's pretty simple. It's not a good sign. So what do they overpromise on? Say if they publish guidance of we're going to hit 10 cents per share in the next quarter and they hit nine cents or below, they're constantly looking for higher margins and they fail to hit on them or looking to make acquisitions and they just don't deliver. So that lack of execution would be obviously a big minus. Uh, on the positive side, you track a team that continues to out, you know, they, they hit their targets or they outperform their targets long-term. You gain a higher degree of confidence in that business and if they say, you know, if you, you see going forward, oh, we're going to have, instead of 20% growth, we're going to have 30. So there's an up step or a step up in growth. You trust that, you, you trust that guidance more than a company that obviously does the opposite. So, you know, if management continues to hit on their targets, it's 
you know, a plus for us on the management, uh, in the management category track record with past businesses. So if we're familiar with the management team or you can look them up and, and from past businesses and they had unfavorable outcomes, it's typically not a plus. Um, we, again, the same thing on the, the other side, if you see a company that's had a past outcome in a, in, a, in an operation of a public company, for example, that's done well, um, it's a plus, but we would caution that, um, while we've seen management teams with successful track records in the future, do it again. Uh, it's not a guarantee the current business will be a success. We have to do all the same research. We can't just rely on the coattails of management. Uh, we've seen a number of teams actually in the past that have had success at one business or venture and be less successful in another, particularly if they made themselves a great deal of cash in the last investment. So they're less motivated potentially or more prone to take higher risks. So you really do have to look at each business individually as an individual situation. But, you know, if the management has been successful in the past, it's better than likely if they haven't been successful in the past. Accessibility is one thing that we like to most times if most times the management teams that we deal with are very easy to get a hold of. They see value in our independent coverage, happy to speak with us. We don't sell anything. We're just looking at being potential long term investors in their company with a big client and base that can invest along with us. So that's exactly what they're looking for. However, it's not always the case. Some management teams are inaccessible. Um, and or gruff or not easy to deal with at all. And uh, some, you know, that's very often a negative if we can't get a hold of a business and it gets some color onto, you know, you know, you said this in your financial statements, it's relatively unclear. Just please clarify with us what, what you're trying to say here. Uh, that helps going forward. If you can't do that, you know, it's, it's a definite negative. There are, having said this, there are cases when we've made exceptions in the past. If something, you know, a company checks off a ton of our other boxes and management isn't completely accessible, uh, for example, they've had guidance and they keep hitting it or exceeding it, but they just don't talk to the market a ton, you can make an exception, but that would be um, the exception rather than a rule. We'd love to have a company be accessible, have a good track record with management, and uh, also you know, own a significant stake in the business. So, so th those are three things that we look for in a management team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tough when you get the ones that you know, they, they will tell you, I, I, you know, look, I'm running a business here. What do you, what do you want? You know, so uh, in, in yeah, some yeah. cases, you like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, and you, want, you want them to be yeah. focused on the business, right? I Honestly, and we try to be very respectful of their time, like schedule it in advance, sure. come in and, and you know, let's, you know, let's have a quick 30 minute, let's not sit on the phone for two hours. And, you know, we do all our research and have really good questions and, and focused questions because you want them to be focused on running the business. It, you know, we've seen guys that talk too much, right? And they're out there too much. It's like, get back and run your business, right? So, <laughs> but you know, it's always a balancing yeah. act and it's really company specific. But if, you know, in generalities, those would be three that right. we'd look for in a management team. So, so Ryan, move, moving forward here, my questions, my, my next one for you, and, and this was something that I found on your website too, and it had to do with, uh, and you mentioned this also earlier in the interview is that, you know, you look at your debt ratios, you want to see, 
you know, you're looking at uh, uh, the company's balance sheet to see what their liabilities are moving forward. So for you, you know, and, and your strategy, what, what would you say is an acceptable level of financial risk for you when evaluating a potential new investment? Yeah, and and if we want to focus specific specifically, sorry, on small cap or uh, micro cap type investments, we're looking at limited debt to be key. Small and over leveraged for us is often a recipe for disaster in the event of a cyclical downturn. And when you're looking to hold a company for two to five to ten years. Um, there's going to be a cyclical downturn, even in non-cyclical businesses, they can get affected. Uh, to, but particularly if the company has a you know higher level of cyclicality to it, like in Canada, there's a lot of resource related. We talked about those businesses. Uh, they're subject to boom and bust, high debt levels at an acceptable, unacceptable level of risk uh, to a cyclical business. So we you know, in a, in a business that's less cyclical, we can high, uh, stomach some higher debt ratios in the business. But, um, you know, our, our ideal business has a great balance sheet with a strong net cash position that can employ that um, in a downturn to buy businesses that come on sale and generates cash flow. So, you know, if we're looking for for the ideal business, it would be more a company with a great cash balance that's patient with that and can employ it either to grow existing operations or grow by an acquisition that's non-dilutive. So, you know, that would be something that we definitely look for. Higher risk if you're looking at debt-laden companies with uh, a high level of cyclicality to them. So if you just look at net debt to EBITDA ratio to determine a company's ability to pay its debt and to continue operating going forward, that ratio serves you quite well. Anything above four is considered relatively high. Right. Yeah, this question is important to me because, you know, uh, and we covered this many times on the podcast and talking about people's strategies and, you know, they want to see no debt and, or, you know, <laughs> but, but in microcaps, that's tough. You know, it's, you know, like these guys are trying to grow their businesses and they'll do it any way, which way they can. Yeah. And sometimes that access to capital can be, if you find an orphan company that's sitting there at low valuations and they think they can grow more and, right. you know, sometimes they have to take on some debt. Um, you know, there's a model of an ideal company we're looking for. You can't always get that. Um, you know, there, there's several businesses that we've uh, looked at that uh, had some debt to start with, but you could see the cash flow was going to pay off that debt. Right. And they've turned out two, three years later into huge net cash positions. So, you know, you're looking for them going in that direction. I mean, they may have some debt on the, I mean, that's not an evil thing. Like if, if you can service the debt easily, it's, it's fine. And also, you know, this is one of the 10 or 20 stocks in your portfolio. If a couple of them, you know, have some leverage to the business that, you know, is potentially trending downwards, so, you know, they're paying off some of their debt. Those can definitely be part of your portfolio. If we're looking at an ideal company, you know, it might not have that, but you know, Expel had a little bit of debt when we originally recommended them. Now there's a net cash position, right? So, it, you know, mm -hmm. it's trending in that direction. You know, those are things we're looking for. And even and even in that ideal company that you might have, you know, that at the end of the day, you don't know if that even if a company fits that ideal, if that right. will work out. So, you know, yeah, it's so, really, it's it, really it, how you're it's up to your appetite and what you're willing to risk. Yes. If you had 10 out of 10 uh, of your criteria checked off, I mean, first of all, that doesn't really ever exist. But <laughs> um, even then, 
it's not a uh, it's, it doesn't assure you that that company is going to be um, going to be successful going forward. If we knew for absolute certainty that ten out of ten, and we found a company ten out of ten, we'd have one company in our portfolio, right? And that would be that one business, and it would do great over time. But that's why we're buying, you know, one to twenty or ten to twenty stocks, not one. Sorry, right. ten to twenty stocks, because you need some level of diversification. We don't want over diversification, so you can have differing businesses with slightly, you know, different profiles. But for us, they fit within a box. That box has um, some variability within it. Right. So my next question, actually, it goes back to something that you're talking about earlier in terms of, uh, you know, uh, discovery and, and finding potential new investments. And again, I'm going to harpen back to your, your 25 years of extensive experience. Um, <laughs> and, and, and how would you say your the discovery process has changed over the years? Yeah, I mean... I think that uh, we've been able to rule out companies faster, like certain things, uh, whether it be sectors like if we, you know, you can see low valuations on a, on a company, but if it's in a boom and bust sector, you know, it's low valuation because it doesn't deserve a higher valuation because within a year, you know, if it's trading at a low cash flow multiple, the cash flow can fall off the table and suddenly they're trading at a high valuation, right? Mm -hmm. Even the stock stays at the same price. So mm -hmm. who to rule out? And then you learn who's in the business, certain management teams to rule out, to be honest, right? Like just that, the, you know, in the small cap segments that we just don't want to be uh, invested with or alongside of uh, because they're the stewards of your, your capital. So I think you... You, you you learn what you know what type of companies to rule out who to rule about being involved with and and then you just you learn uh, not to stray from your criteria uh, one of the things that we see I see maybe inexperienced investors or investors who really don't have a strategy or a plan um, if something else comes in front of them like you say this time last year or heading into 2018 a ton of our clients said we need crypto related stocks we need blockchain related yes. stocks we need these in our in our portfolio we have to have them so we looked at every crypto related in Canada and into the US there's about 40 related companies at that time not a single one of them met our criteria in terms of profitability so it was a non-starter for putting them. I mean, we believe that blockchain technology is incredibly interesting and there will be winners. But was there an investment on the public markets at that time that fit our criteria? Well, there wasn't. And it kept us away from them. And it kept us buying other companies rather than buying those. And we just did a review of those companies, the 40 plus of them uh, over the past year. The average decline was 85%. Wow. It's absolutely cautionary tale for like we just hate the flavor of the day so often and and that was you know i think there's some legs definitely in blockchain as a technology but was there a public vehicle that at that time trading at reasonable valuations that we could invest in no there just was not right and uh and you know it's a cautionary tale it was the same time when when we were getting those questions that we said, why don't you invest in this little company that puts a film on a car that perfects scratches and dings? And that was Expel, right? And you know, it was up 300 plus percent last year. And they, on the other side, and that was as boring as hell. And nobody was talking about that business. But, you know, that's what we like to bring to clients. And that's what, you know, we would love to bring to more clients, right? But that's what we bring to our clients. 
and you know trying to avoid just hype and you know that's you do learn to avoid those you know those hyped investments and also just uh at that time when you're hearing about it it's typically been overpriced in the market so we're not we're not invested in those right and ryan just for full disclosure here do you own any shares in expel yes i do and keystone does as well so Ryan, this is my favorite question, as everyone pretty much knows on here. What what would you say is an an investing experience that helps shape your current investing thesis? Hmm. Investing experience. What one of the things that um, way back, way back in in I mean, there's been tons of experiences along the way, but I th I think there was an interview that I, I actually heard originally in uh, university that Warren Buffett gave. And he talked about, um, you know, he, he it was with a, a guy named Adam Smith, right? Mm. And not that Adam Smith. Not <laughs> Warren's not that old, right? But right. anyway, it was so, so he, he was asked, like, what he would do today um, if, if he was an you know, starting as an analyst, right? What he was would do today, how he'd start. And he said, to, he looked, you know, with his wry smile, he looked at the interviewer and he said, uh, I'd start at the A's and go through every company in, in, in North America, right? And the interviewer kind of laughed and said, ha, but there's 25,000 stocks in North America. And he said, yeah, no, I would start at the A's, right? And it, it, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but that um, – and he's serious. Like he looks through the financial statements of that many companies you know, just over time, continually looking. That is what we do, and the analysts that we hire that work with us – that is exactly what we tell them to do. Go out there and, and we give, you know, give them access to CDAR. They go in and they look at every company in Canada and get a firm base on uh, what the business does. Are they growing? You know, make their notes. Uh, and and you, you read the financial statements, read the MDNA, read the outlook. Because, you know, there's screeners we can use today, obviously. When we started, there wasn't as many online screeners you can use. But a screener can't read an MDNA and interpret it. Maybe that'll happen in the future, but they can't interpret it like we can now. So this uh, changed, you know, when I read that, and we, you know, we look at the interview several times. Uh, it's the way that you look at an investment. Like, you, you have to do that discovery research. You have to you know, alienate your friends and family for a month and look at all of those companies. And it really, you end up going through a thousand companies, but if you find one or two that makes your clients a ton of money that year, it is worthwhile because, you know, it makes you or your clients that money. So uh, that interview has stuck with us over time. And it's a key philosophy that we use in leaving no stone unturned and looking at every company, even if we've looked at it 10 times, uh, Things can change in a business, so you want to read those twice a year and uh, and find value, hopefully find some value. Right. So then what advice do you have for new microcap investors? Yeah, well, I'd start off by saying, you know, what are you looking to do when you invest in this sector? Um, you're, you're typically looking at microcaps not to just have an average return you're looking to have outstretched returns to beat the market long term uh often i think investors who are inexperienced in this sector equate that to high risk or concept stocks purely speculative businesses if you're looking for those type of returns um 
we would strictly advise against doing that unless you want to lose your capital long term. I would take control of your portfolio, invest in quality cash producing businesses. I know this sounds boring, but it, it you know, like Expel and Boyd, Expel's the best performing non-penny stock on the TSX in Canada last year. Boyd is the best performing stock over the past 10 years. Those are pretty boring businesses, but what's really sexy about them is one made you 5,700% over 10 years and one made you 320% last year. That's sexy. You can go and do whatever you want with that money after you've made it and do it, you know, but stay away from these hype speculative businesses. You can buy good quality businesses that are growing and they'll make you money. And the making money is exciting and sexy, not just a story. And there's so many concepts in this sector that uh, I think that you can stick with get rid of the hype stocks and the flavor of the day and stick with quality businesses and use a trusted how about you use a trusted research service to find those that would be my advice you can yeah. use ours or any others that you're comfortable with that's my advice cool so as we round the band here brian you know where can my audience go and find more information about you and keystone financial you can find us uh, at www.keystocks.com so K-E-Y-S-T-O-C-K-S.com. Uh, we have an 800 number on there. If you want to call us, talk to me or talk to Aaron or any of our associates. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we just provide research on quality cash-producing businesses. We've been doing it for uh, 20 years now, and uh, you know we want to continue to use the same cr criteria going forward and uh, find companies that other firms really aren't looking at that can add some growth and value in your portfolio. Beautiful. That's a great way to end it right there. And and by the way, where if uh, people want to find you on social media, what's your uh, Twitter, Facebook, anything like that? Yeah, I think it, my Twitter is Ryan Irvin 75. We literally just set it up. You can find key stocks. Uh, I think that's our Twitter for the company that has a hell of a lot more following. I am not big on social media, but I've been told by our marketing department that's starting this week i need to so add me on uh twitter and i'm gonna start uh tweeting on there but you can get us on facebook under keystone financial or keystocks.com i believe you find us on those social media channels quite easily awesome well this is going to be the first thing that you'll tweet out how about that <laughs> yes hey, i'm tweeting this out i'm gonna i'm gonna figure out how to use twitter and do that yes there you good go idea. There you go. All right. Well, Ryan, man, it was uh, really such a pleasure to have you on the program. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. And uh, I'll be seeing you in Vegas very shortly, my friend. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Ryan, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.